I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. Hello, and welcome back to For Your Ears Only. This is the special Optimism Vaccine deep dive into the world of all things James Bond, hosted by me, Jake Tropila, joined as always by my co-host, Jack Eason. Jack, say hello. Hey, Jake, what's up? Uh, not too much. Things are good. How have you been? Uh, pretty good. Uh, excited to get back into all things Bond as we, we round into, as you said, the final third. Indeed, yeah, we had a little discussion beforehand, and a uh, little little fun fact for the trivia, uh, Jack and I actually met in person for the first time about a month and a half ago. We uh, celebrated our good friend Steve Cuff's wedding in Milwaukee. And they are still together. They are still together, yeah, that's true. All right, excellent. And uh, today's a special episode, not because we're discussing a special film, but we have a special guest Joining us once again, you may recall him from the Live and Let Die episode. Please welcome back to the fold, Adam Myros. Adam, welcome. Hi, guys. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm curious about this movie. Absolutely. I was going to ask, Adam, did, did you, like, what made you, like, Live and Let Die and then License to Kill? Were, you, were these picks specifically or just randomly will show up? Well, well I, I, I don't have ongoing familiarity with much of this series but i i just kind of picked them on the basis of uh actors i like i i am a dalton fan myself so i was kind of intrigued to see something from his era and i believe uh steve jumped on the the previous one so i was left with this thing and uh live and let die was a yafikado uh motivated (laughs) that's That's very fair. fair yeah all right, yeah. So I mean, uh, let's get into it, shall we? This is uh, this is a very uh, very exciting film for many reasons. The year is 1989, as you mentioned. This is Timothy Dalton's second, as we would soon discover, final film as James Bond. A uh, lot of actual final films for some people going on in this film. This is the final film directed by John Glenn, who helmed the previous four movies, and I just discovered today that he actually helmed every Bond film that took place in the 80s. Um, so pretty, uh, pretty tight command of that decade, but, yeah, uh, end of an era, end of an era, end of an era for many. All right. So, uh, this is the bond film, just spoiling uh, the box office segment. This is the bond film that basically killed the franchise. This is, uh, after license to kill, we see the longest gap between installments. And, uh, I think a lot Whoa. of the film's tone and content has something to account for that yes jack probably, go ahead. probably that that and everyone dying um, we have uh so john glenn this is True. his last film glenn didn't die to be fair he's st- but he's still alive he's still alive still kicking but richard maybaum who helped write almost every bond film i think maybe every bond film back to back to dr no passed away and he also wasn't able to write on this film a lot because there was a wga strike and then uh, one of the I can't which was it Cubby Broccoli passed on as well yeah like this a couple is years Cu- later Cubby Broccoli's final film he handed it off to his daughter Barbara in the interim and she took over from Goldeneye going forward so so we have that and then we have Morris Binder our uh, our main credits guy also passed away this he is his passed final away film. we lose uh, Robert Brown as our second M we lose him after this film uh, John Barry the composer passed away in the after the Living Daylights. 
So, so yeah, no, you know, the license to kill pretty much just wiped out the crew. So yeah. I, I'm not one to do research. I leave that to you people. But uh, sure, wasn't I, I was looking into Dalton's exit and had read something about a, a rights dispute that led to a canceled interim film. What, what's the deal with this rights business? Well, so there's a very messy uh, history behind the Bond series and a gentleman by the name of Kevin McClory regarding the film Thunderball, where he and Ian Fleming came up with the story behind Thunderball, and uh, Fleming went ahead and adapted the book, but uh, didn't credit McClory, so when it came time to uh, make the film Thunderball, uh, Kevin McClory uh, fought for rights and actually won rights for the film Thunderball, which he then used to remake Never Say Never Again in the 80s. Uh, and, um, so yeah, part of the, part of the issue stems from him trying to reclaim the rights of the Bond film, which also think that and the low box office score really put a damper on the film and put it in the hiatus that I mentioned earlier. So it's, it's, it's just very messy behind the scenes stuff regarding who wrote what exactly with earlier entries and who was entitled to what portion of Bond. Yeah. And a a curious part on it actually is that apparently Timothy Dalton, was willing and going to come back as James Bond after that hiatus once they wrapped things up. But the problem he was, was ready. That they, yeah, he was ready to do it, but they they insisted he sign on for a multi film contract, and he he did, he just wanted to do like maybe one more. So yeah. uh, he quit, and he was on the set of uh, what is the Gone with the Wind se- sequel, Scarlet, I believe, Scarlet, in ninety four. Yeah. So uh, you know, how would they make a Gone with the Wind sequel? I've never watched that. <laughs> so I'm just a little nervous of that production. But um, yeah. so so Dal- this this was Dalton's final film through a series of mishaps. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just it's just a, it's a lot of very complicated legalities behind the scenes that, um, frankly, are kind of shitty. But yeah, anyways, it happens. I was gonna I was gonna ask Adam, because um, I'm curious about this one. This because uh, License to Kill, I think, is a very distinct Bond film. I was just curious. So have you had you seen it before? No, no, I had not. Okay, so yeah, so I was wondering, do do you have any associations with the film? Do you is it like, has it ever come out in conversation to you as an unusual Bond film? I had virtually no knowledge of this film at all. I I or okay. this entire How era exciting. of Bond, uh, it, it's not what I associate much of anything with, and and I find it even more mysterious having watched this. I'm like, I don't <laughs> I don't know what James Bond was in this era. I guess. That 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 is fair. Yeah, totally no, fair. I was just cur- I was just curious because I mean, this is always the film that like this was probably my favorite Bond film as a kid because it was the Bond film that you know you kind of felt you weren't supposed to watch. It was the the most violent one. It probably still is. Maybe I don't know. I haven't seen the later Daniel Craig era films, but like certainly likes to kill like ratchets up the violence. It was you know it got its 15s rating in in the UK and Ireland just and a PG 13 in the US which none of the other ones they were all PG across the that's, board. That's right. Yeah, the PG uh, rating died as well. So Bond is PG 13 from here on in. That's right. And I mean honestly, it was ratcheting it up either way. I mean this is almost like quasi or rated in a few sections. The early PG 13 films, I think they were trying to figure stuff out. There's some stuff in the early PG 13 era that would not make it in now. Yeah. But, I think, uh, uh, I think uh, Gremlins and uh, Temple of Doom. Um, exactly, yes. Uh, you know, like nowadays you're allowed in PG 13 film, you can kill like 300 people, that's no problem, but like there's no blood. But like Gremlins right. and Temple of Doom, they've and this, I mean, they blow a man yeah. up in this movie. Yeah, um, yeah, quite graphically. Yeah. 
quite yeah. graphically indeed. So yeah, no, I was just curious because, I mean, this is always, for me, felt like, you know, this is like edgy Bond. This is the, the out there Bond. And I think it's, yeah. it's kind of, it holds tough. It's still just a very strange film even down to like i mean we as we dive in the first sequence they kind of break the rules a little bit because this film hits the ground running the pre-credit sequence is not oh, uh, a separate caveat or like it's not a separate vignette it's a uh, it's um you know it's plot straight in it's it sets us up so you know yeah. it's kind of a very no-nonsense film or at least that's what it wants to be uh, we'll discuss the merits <laughs> of success of that but it certainly wants to be you know very much like a, a gritty 80s thriller and like i saw reading up on this like lethal weapon was repeatedly referred to as something they were comparing themselves to which that's, is that's fair not I a see. film yeah not a film i would compare bond to at any point um but you know that was what they were looking for so they were obviously trying for something just uh, a little bit more extreme and mature maybe i don't know about mature that's uh <laughs> well, that's always I, a loaded gun <laughs> yeah I, I suppose coming in especially familiar more with dalton's later work and comparing him to brosnan they they've had fairly similar careers i'd say and have fairly similar on-screen personas that i was i was expecting something more akin to 90s james bond and this is right. much more like something in the daniel craig era yeah and dalton is actually one of the first bonds who really approached the um the films with a, a certain kind of appreciation for the uh source novels he really wanted it to be he didn't think this was a series for children he really wanted it to be a harder and darker bond which is why i think a lot of the I think, he, especially with the writer strike, I think he had a lot of uh, creative input with how how dark that this film should go. Um, but uh, let's let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into it. We open up. Uh, our good friend Felix Leiter is getting married, and uh, this is actually a strange first for the series. Is that whenever Felix Leiter appears in each film, CIA agent Felix Leiter, he's played by a different actor. Here's the first instance where he's played by a returning actor. In this case, it's David Hedison. Who Adam, you might even recall as being Felix Leiter in Live and Let Die. I, I strange... did recall this, so I I'm like, oh, this guy must have been playing him for all the Roger Moore movies. But it's, apparently you, not. You think so? <laughs> Wouldn't you... that make a lot of sense? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. he didn't make no, a lot you... of sense in this movie, I'll say that. He felt very uh out of place. <laughs> very out of very place much in, like a nineteen seventies yeah. relic. <laughs> it's it's there's definitely an element of this i i put in my notes watching this film that honestly he's giving bond a run for his money in terms of cradle robbing because he's like 61 years old marrying a 35 year old so uh and also his work. wife appears to be attempting to seduce timothy dalton at every time oh yeah she yes. is all over him <laughs> Oh, and poor Dalton. He can. I mean, this movie really, on the on the whole, is about the sanctity of marriage. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely my read on this. Uh, uh, it, it's an interesting film actually because it, it it opens and we have a direct. There, we've discussed Jake before the the discussions of whether James Bond is a code name and it's a different guy or what you know, or it's the same guy and we're just supposed to accept yeah. the shift from actor and and you know time period and it's very clearly laid out here it's the same person because this they is, refer yeah. to dalton as having been married once long ago uh, yeah which you know is of course is the, the setup for this and and dalton obviously or, or bond has great respect for marriage because he does not uh bed della who is throwing herself at him right in front of felix she's throwing her underwear at him it's very impolite at that point where she offers her garter and he's like, no thanks. And she just gives it to him anyway. That just seems rude, frankly. <laughs> yeah. 
Indeed. This is a, another interesting thing about Dalton. I mean, you you might know, be familiar with Adam that Bond is the kind of guy who beds a lot of women in the, each of his films. But Dalton is actually the a very monogamous Bond. Uh, aside from like just an opening fling in The Living Daylights, he's only with one Bond girl throughout that film. And here... Um, if I'm not mistaken, he only beds one Bond girl as well. Uh, I, I, think I'm, two. I, I think two. Yeah, I'm counting two, I think, for maybe, both of them. I maybe don't remember. Lupe, okay. Yeah, no, no, because there, there's a fade inferred. out. There, there's, there's a, yeah, no, there's, why wouldn't he? It's, yeah, <laughs> it's a tip, fair. it's a classic Bond dissolve, and like, we, we know what's going, you might as well just stick a train in a tunnel, do the old okay. Howard yeah. Hawks move or whatever. But That's fair. <laughs> any, but still, nonetheless, like, if he beds two women per film, that's still one off the average because Bond is very busy. Oh yeah, he averages like three or four. If you're uh, Sean Connery, um, well, and the but, way uh, it's characterized in this film, the the second uh, tryst felt very odd and tacked on for the sake of being James Bond is a womanizer. Yeah. Like I'm like, well, this doesn't yeah. really jive with with where this movie's going. <laughs> he's barely yeah, he's barely a womanizer in this. He just seems like pissed like i mean timothy tall just seems pissed off for the whole film like he's just brooding and intense it, well yeah, it, there's a weird disconnect you, here i think if, if you ask me pissed off bond is a great thing um because i bond except I, that the women keep you know like it's the same yeah. stuff still happens he's just pissed off while it's happening now <laughs> that's true but for as far as everything else goes i think it's wonderful um but yeah so felix Leiter's getting married and the cia gets a beat on uh our villain who's immediately introduced it's uh sanchez played by <laughs> robert davi the guy who tried to kill the goonies I, um, yeah, I, I feel bad about this because I, I haven't watched this movie in like 20 years. So my, my for some reason just lodged in my brain was that the character has the most generic Hispanic name in the world. Yeah. So when he first showed up, I was taking notes while I was watching it. And I'm so pissed. Off. I just got it wrong. I just put I just guessed Carlos, but it turns out it was Sanchez. <laughs> <laughs> so damn. Yeah, it's not not a memorable name. But uh, if you ask me a very memorable character, I think he's maybe a contender for one of the top three best villains of the entire franchise. Um, and he's often freaked like, you know, everybody remembers Goldfinger and Scaramanga, but um, Dobby just is so like wonderfully dark and, but charismatic and, and like seductive and charming in the role. I think he's, I think he's a great foil to Timothy Dalton in this movie. Um, what are you, what are your initial thoughts on, uh, on Dobby, Adam? Oh, I'd agree. I I think he's fantastic. I think, yeah. Again, as much as we'll get into some of the stuff that's kind of strange and off-putting about this movie, the central cast <laughs> with uh, Dalton and Davi and Carrie Lowell—they're all great for their role. I think, and he is a very memorable villain, and not as flamboyant. He certainly doesn't feel uh, coming off my last experience in this series where they had. Uh, a titanic actor for the villain and did almost nothing with him uh this is yeah refreshing to see because davi yeah. is very excellent here definitely he apparently he apparently did method acting and he stayed in character throughout the shoot which <laughs> must have been interesting for everyone yeah so davi shows up he's got uh his henchman is his younger brother played by uh benicio del toro the ripe old age of 21 years old in his second feature film he plays uh dario he catches his lover, Lupe, with another man. So uh, here's how you establish a guy as the villain. Uh, you have him cut out the heart of your lover's uh, fling, 
And then he whips her with the barbed tail of a stingray. Yeah, I, I only found out reading late. I mean, I've seen this movie. I watched it all the time growing up. And uh, I watched it again the other night. And then I read on the internet that the whip was made from the barbed tail of a stingray. And that's the first time that ever read to me as what that was. But he whips yeah. her. It's it's pretty clear that part, at least. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a very... Yeah, Davi is very, very matter of fact in this in this role. He's and it's. I mean, we'll talk about. It, I guess the film goes on. It's this is very much like Bond does the news, sort of a thing. So it's you know it's drug war. It's not like a grandiose plot to take over the world. So Davi kind of slots in as just a kind of, in, admittedly to some degree, stereotypical South American dictator drug lord person. I think he modeled himself on Noriega. Um, hmm. who was of course an enemy of the US state at this at this point in time. So, you know, he yeah, I, I think it's he he really plays it successfully just as a as a bad guy. Honestly, I don't they they go very hard early on to establish that he's a very bad person. And it's yeah. at a certain point it's kinda of like, okay, we get it. It's fair enough. He he's bad. He's wanted by the CIA, so much so that they interrupt Felix's wedding so that Felix can chase him out of the sky with a helicopter with the help of James Bond. And um, this is going back to like the living daylights of things that I love is just practical stunts with aircraft because the helicopter hooking the airplane in the sky, I think it's magnificent. Um, I love, and it's something that the, this is like kind of like the last hurrah for those sorts of big practical stunts in the series as we kind of, we will deviate to the world of like CG and miniatures. But uh I, I really love this this opening sequence. It's like it, it sure it can be it feels like a tight episode of uh, Miami Vice, especially with like the slow mo shots of the cops running on the 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 air runway. But um I I mean just the I don't know I I I think it's great. What do you guys think? I think it definitely looks sufficiently dangerous. Um, it's it's got For that sure. feel. Um so yeah no I would agree that this aerial stuff is hard to fake. And, it, you know, it looks fake a lot when you start, you know, moving in models and, and rear projection and stuff. So, you know, it is it is pretty cool when you're looking at it and you're like, that's, they strapped some dudes to an airplane. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's interesting how small it looks now. Like, the the big This is true. Is, true. You know, he, he jumps like three feet from one thing to the next, which are, is tremendously dangerous the way they're doing it. But nonetheless... In the in the wake of recent what whatever the hell Tom Cruise feels like doing, uh, it's just like, <laughs> look at that, that's kind of look at that little guy. He's he's taking three steps off to one plane to the next, and it's it's interesting yeah. how it's true. Small the the, it feels. Be, the begrudging conservative in me is kind of like I prefer it back here where you know I knew the limits to special effects. Like nowadays you can do stuff and it's like, oh, it's probably all CGI. And then I find out it actually wasn't all CGI, right. but I was like, whatever, screw yeah. it. It could have been. <laughs> yeah. I like I like to know where I stand with people risking their lives for my entertainment. So this is and this sets up a thing that I really love and notice about John Glenn's directing is that he's very much a, a like a master of like the plant and payoff. Um, because they're supposed to be going to the wedding. They're up in the sky. They hook up Sanchez, and they happen to be over the wedding venue, so they just, what's the, what? how do you get down there? You parachute down, and then once they land, the parachutes act as the wedding train for the reception. I think just that kind of little 
that little the, the moments like that really stand out and there's like several that's, of them I've yeah that, that's a that's a really great little visual gag and it's something that i kind of notice in this film is we talked about the you know the living daylights previously as being a much it was also a kind of an edgier bond experience and yeah prior but it still had like weird madcap animal humor reaction shots from monkeys and things like that and yeah. this movie is a lot more reserved it has like that parachute train gag is is nice but it's not like uh, there, there isn't a dog doing a double take while it happens, you know. Which, they, like, they're 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 rolling it back a little bit. I do feel yeah. though, as you know, we go into our old, you know, uh, you know, men and women humor and stuff. Like, honestly, uh, I guess Felix has hit the the jackpot. He's got this woman who will allow him to show up late and upstage her at her wedding. Both things that generally would be ill advised by uh, traditional moors. But I suppose, as we mentioned, she spends the whole after party throwing herself at his friend so who knows what their organization is uh there's a lot of confusing stuff going on here yeah so they uh they land at the wedding and then uh that leads us into our uh title song which goes a little something like this in the background um i gotta say i'm not really a fan of this song um i think it's a uh, I, I think the the audio i must I, i'm gonna chalk it up to the uh, just the era that this was recorded in but it's very uh i feel like it's very like loud and brassy in all the wrong ways um almost it's, like it's shrill um it's a bit mixed to. up i think yeah. certainly it's better than I re- it's better than i remember it uh, which is not me defending it particularly, but that's solely because, and, and again, it's strange because I haven't seen the movie in so long that I do actually, I, it's actually proven quite a memorable theme song for me. I don't know if that was just repetition back in my early teens, but uh, I'd forgotten the way that the, the backing singers come in, which just amps up the 80s-ness just a little bit. Uh, yeah. I've forgotten that, and that improves the song, but it, it's a weird song because it's kind of a romance song, but it's about a license to kill. Um, and it's, in, as we say, injected into a film that is 
not particularly romantic. I mean, I joke about it being about the sanctity of marriage. Uh, it's it's very waywardly about that in terms of murdering people for revenge. Um, no one's happy in this movie. So yeah, um, yeah it, it's it's sort of a strange film. Um, and and the one thing I did find out apparently is that Gladys Knight, who sang the song as a gospel singer, apparently originally tried to reject the song because she didn't want to say anything, sing anything about killing people. But eventually relented. But honestly, I feel like maybe she was on the right track or I, or may or maybe the song should have been more about killing and they should have gotten like anthrax to record it or something well you know she's got a license to kill but she's going straight for your heart um I, I, uh, adam jack had said that he this was better than he remembered it i was wondering what sort of unholy terror ah, had ah. resided in his memory <laughs> of the song. yeah good. no ba- basic <laughs> basically when i say it's better than i remembered it's exactly as i remembered but without that backing singer line that's literally that's as much defending as i'm doing right now any uh, any uh, thoughts on the song, uh, Adam? Strong or otherwise? The th- my thoughts on the song are, it's probably the worst Bond theme I, I've heard personally, and I haven't just that's, sat that's through fair. every movie. But I did not think this worked at all for me. <laughs> that that's yeah. fair. Um, I, yeah, I it doesn't really come up that often. Um, it did really well in the charts, I think, actually for, like, I think it went into the top ten in the UK at least, which you know I guess is is something uh, i noticed because um john barry didn't score this um yeah this so, is a michael cayman joint so michael he... cayman came in yeah and uh but he didn't write this song either he didn't write any of the signature songs i as far as i can tell scanning the credits so, which i thought no. was a little unusual yeah so i you guys go more chronological so i won't get into it yet but i will say that as much as i did not like this song it's not the strangest inclusion in the soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> that may go to the oh, end credits, go. which we'll get to. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's fair. And, and, and I will note, John Glenn hired Michael Kamen because he felt that he was the uh, closest thing he could get to John Barry without being able to get John Barry. And I don't honestly know if that's a compliment or not for Kamen. Not not like as in, a, a, you know, that John Barry is lacking, but just sort of like, you sound like the other guy. Uh, so I guess whatever, he got his paycheck. Yeah. And Kamen certainly worked plenty up until his death, so... Uh, I suppose you couldn't complain too much. But uh, yeah, the film or the song was not really a hit in the U.S., but it was. Uh, it did top at number six in the U.K., uh, number four in Ireland. Uh, so Ooh, Jack, may- maybe go. that maybe that song is in uh, deep in your memory. And then uh, number one in Sweden. So the uh, I believe it was also composed by a Swede. So yeah, they oh, were, well, there you they, go. They love their uh, Gladys supporting Knight. supporting the home fans. Why not? Yeah. So, uh, all right. End of song. It, back to film. Uh, Felix Leiter is happily married. We discussed the uh, business with the uh, the the. Uh, why am I blinking on the thing that wraps around Della Leiter's leg? Uh, uh, garter. Garter. Gar- yes, Garter. Good lord, Garter. I just got married this year too. Shame on me. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, meanwhile, Sanchez is being interrogated, and he offers uh, two million dollars. Uh, as a reward for anyone who breaks him out of police custody. Um, and his uh, escort is being led by a gentleman named Killifer, who's played by uh, Big Ed Big from Ed. Twin Peaks. Who, yeah. weirdly, is not the only David Lynch connection in this movie. Because uh, uh, Telisa Soto, um, who mm. plays Lupe, uh, plays in The Cowboy and the Frenchman, which is one of the... Very, very funny, but also hmm. weird, even within the context of David Lynch's work, weird David Lynch films. Um, 
So yeah, thought, strange, uh, yeah. strange setup. Interesting. I thought you were gonna say that uh, Wayne Newton appeared in Dune. But, oh, uh, but there you go. Everett <laughs> McGill was in that too. Big Ed. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that would be that would be a uh, yeah good yeah. setup. Yeah. No, it's weird. Honestly, I Everett McGill is so like he is Big Ed, and he, I accept him in Dune as well. I honestly, whenever I see him, he's just like that's Big Ed. Um, yeah. So a bit weird to have him playing a hard edged whatever fbi da some government dude yeah uh, he's a uh, well he's corrupt as we see because he orchestrates uh sanchez's um escape and this is actually something else that uh tom cruise borrowed for a mission impossible movie it's when a box truck goes underwater and then fills up and then divers have to save the passengers inside well, yeah, and the uh, missile yeah. attack on the bridge is straight out of mission impossible 3 as well yeah or mission yeah. impossible 3 is straight out of this it's right, yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of things borrowed from, uh, from this this film in particular, and um, uh, yeah. So Sanchez escapes. Uh, Bond is planning to head back to. Uh, I think actually his next mission is to take place in Canada, but um, Sanchez uh, he has his men uh, kidnap Lighter, and they take his wife away as well. And then we find out later that uh, she may or may not have been raped, and then murdered. This evidenced by uh, Benicio del Toro's line that he croons. Says we gave her a nice honeymoon, and then uh, they feed Felix Leiter to a shark. I do um, want to point out prior to this that it would appear they also raid Felix Leiter's home office, and yeah. he apparently just keeps confidential federal files in his house. Well, which... yeah, we did see we did see earlier that he stashed a floppy disk behind a picture frame, and this is one that he was dealing with. Uh, who ends up being our Bond girl at the film, Carrie Lowell, playing Pam Bouvier. Um, so she was meeting earlier and she bumps into Bond, but that's what they were looking for, uh, yeah. as far as I know. I'm, I'm just, I'm just gonna say, Felix is, like, he gets grievously injured here. He's also gonna get fired. That's and, true. <laughs> and I guess that's why he never again returns, uh, in the Bond series with the same actor. New yeah. Felix has shown up who takes better care of confidential information. Yeah, well, I mean, this is not to spoil anything, but this is the last uh, Felix Leiter that we will see for a while, and um, he, uh, this is actually straight out of the um, the Bond novels, too, and uh, in Live and Let Die, he's actually fed to some sharks, he loses both a hand and a leg, and he comes back with, like, a fake leg and a hook, um, but, uh, yeah, and they, the sign that they pin on him that Bond finds where it says um, he disagreed with something that ate him, that's also straight out of the book as well. Um, which so. which is a funny thing. So they so they feed they they feed him to a shark, and I just I really have this disconnect because Sanchez is he's brutal vicious guy, um, yeah. But while while he's feeding Felix to a shark, he says, "You understand, this isn't personal. This is this is business." Yeah, and it's like I'm pretty sure it's personal when you feed <laughs> someone to a shark. Like that's you could just shoot him. You could have. I mean, there's a lot of things that are less upkeep and maintenance and scheduling and planning than feeding him path feeding a man to a shark like even scarface <laughs> seems more leisurely paced in terms of how he dealt with people than that but anyhow it's still a bond film i guess is what i'm saying at this point yeah so yeah that uh springs bond back in action and um the rest of the film is basically him getting revenge for his uh, good friend felix being very um, angry just being very angry, not tearing apart Sanchez's um, community of uh, drug dealers, which is uh, actually more convoluted than one might think. Uh, Ooh, as far speaking, as speaking of sharks, go yes, go ahead. S- sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I just got very excited because I, I found it because Adam, you you quipped about 
asking previously about whether or not uh, the the Bond films were just very shark centric, uh, to which we we responded to you and tell you that yes, it is. <laughs> there's there's no getting around it. It's a very shark centric franchise. Uh, but I just I I found out just earlier that. Uh, uh, Priscilla Barnes, who plays Felix's wife Della, had a small role in Tintorera, Killer Shark, the uh, well, probably one of the most famous jaw exploitation films. Um, so I just thought that was a, a, an interesting tie-in. And if anyone ever wants to watch that movie, don't. It's very, very bad. And also, it's literally just full of scenes of cruelty to sharks. They just they didn't fake anything. They just went out and just butchered sharks left, right, and center. And it's a really shitty movie. So ignore it. But yeah. you can acknowledge this really cool thematic trend that I've uh, I've uncovered. I don't know if any of her other stuff was uh, particularly shark related because she has been incredibly busy in TV and movies, and yet somehow has managed to appear in nothing I have ever heard of, other than. <laughs> the really really random like mexican shark movie which may yeah. speak more about me than her yeah i gotta admit i'm completely unfamiliar with the films of uh, della lighter <laughs> <laughs> but uh speaking of lighters we should mention that uh, at the wedding they'd gift bond with a uh, a nice silver engraved lighter with that shoots out a very large flame uh that'll be important don't forget that um but yeah Chekhov's so lighter Chekhov's lighter um which actually i think most people probably forget about by the time it rolls around at the uh, end scene. Um, but uh, yeah, this begins Bond's mission. And uh, unlike other Bond films where he's tasked by His Majesty's Secret Service to stop worldwide domination, what I love about this film is that it's just such an outlier and it is basically having Bond disrupt the uh, inner workings of a drug dealer's community. Um, and that basically includes him manipulating his own men against him so that he kills them for him. And it's, this is like a very active bond. And, um, as he, as he goes about his mission, he's pulled in with, uh, to meet with M in this, uh, at the Hemingway house in the keys and, uh, M orders him to return back to duty and bond basically says, fuck you and flees. And he, this is the first instance of uh, bond going rogue, which is actually a very common, Theme That's a Daniel and... Craig era. I feel. Exactly. I've not even yeah. watched them, and yet I know it's basically just a series of, of Daniel Craig getting hired and refired and so on. Exactly. And, yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting it's interesting within this film because it is basically he goes rogue, but he kind of um it's it's there's a strange conception through the film of lawlessness. I think because they talk about all the time about how you know these it's. I mean, it's a, it's a very racist film. Um, it's it's built out of all of the DNA of kind of western news stories about south america and the drug trade and it doesn't really question any of that it, it just kind of latches on and this is around the time the ussr was uh, collapsing so basically uh western action movies had lost their number one villain and they were kind of looking around for a new one and south america looked pretty good um but it's it's an interesting film because it keep they keep just talking about how like South America is lawless and British and American people have to just do all the work because there's no law there and they've got to bring the law, which is all you know kind of all loaded imperialist kind of stuff. But it right. is interesting in that Bond then pretty much just untethers from even that law to go and enact his own personal vendetta. And in doing so, as we'll find out later on, screws up various international drug busts himself. He just basically just goes off and does whatever the hell he wants. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, you know, he, let's, let's go through it. He, he feeds Big Ed to some sharks. Um, he, uh... That's in not in the handbook. The... 
what? <laughs> that's not in the handbook. You don't feed people to sharks, but that's yeah. what Bond does. Yeah, and before that, he he feeds one guy to a uh, a drawer full of maggots, and then he throws yeah. another guy into an electric eel tank. I counted the maggot guy as a death, even though I really don't know how long you'd have to be in there to die. Uh, but we, we, I, can, yeah. we can debate that later on. <laughs> I, well, I, I, I think thought that was yeah. a death. I thought he was just kind of storing him. It's a death, Adam. It's a fish. That was, that's a kill. He's storing him. He's storing the maggots, and then when you put a person in, the guy is dead. I feel that's that's how it yeah. runs. Maggots everywhere. It'll suffocate in them or something. I don't, they're very fake looking. I will say that. It's very clear that they like just filled a drawer with plastic maggots, and then just had like just two areas that just pulse up and down like two circles in it that just move up and down and that's supposed to breathe life into the into the <laughs> obviously they spend all their money on the plane stuff so they were like maggots sure we'll just fill a drawer full of little like plastic figurines yeah so yeah big ed uh, meets his demise with the same shark that killed uh or that took uh, felix Leiter's leg as well as his uh, two million dollar payout uh, a lot of uh, a lot of reckless abandonment when it comes to money in this picture. It's true, um, and we we should mention at this point as well. There's Milton Crest is our that's right. established as our chief, our our I guess our second bad guy. I don't know how you yeah. rank them exactly. There's a lot of bad guys in this movie because you've Sanchez there's, obviously yeah. kind of bad guy. Then you have kind of Milton Crest as like the next clever guy, but then you also have Dario as the like lead henchman. Well, you know, yeah. I don't is the henchman more than the Milton Crest guy? I, it's hard to say. He's kind of like a. It's just to compare it to for Adam's sake. It's kind of like a Teehee and Live and Let Die. He's kind of like one right hand man who sort of operates the uh, the crocodile farm. Uh, and then there's Baron Samedi is like uh, the and Whisper are the muscle technically. Um, so yeah, Dario is the muscle in this case, and uh, yeah, uh, Zerbe he he's the guy who won, runs the Wavecrest, which is the uh, the the ship where they conduct all the nautical drug trades out in the middle of uncharted waters um this yeah this is uh so yeah basically this film is about cocaine <laughs> laced uh with gasoline uh which is <laughs> insane and it's kind of like what what it when you're watching it there's just so many bizarre shifts in the story and tone that it feels like that that's what the writers were on when they were trying to put this film together <laughs> i like how there's yeah, a think... solution for like separating the two is just like a fucking coffee put it through a fucking <laughs> coffee <laughs> filter <laughs> it's pure yeah, <laughs> You and can then they dry that coke however you like. It's still uh, gonna reek of gasoline. <laughs> yeah, and then the thing is that you can keep the gasoline at a at as a bonus, which seems like that would cost a lot of money for all that gasoline to go <laughs> that out does, there. That seems like it would really run up operating costs for a guy who's uh, you know obs- like obsessed with efficiency. Also, and I know we're jumping ahead there, but though that team of Japanese business guys is like the eighties again, just like. Yeah. I, I don't, why is I don't know what that became a thing like in in eighties movies like there was always like a group of like rowdy Japanese businessmen like at the front row of the strip club that every eighties movie had to go to. In fact, actually, this Bond film has a strip club, which yeah. we never haven't. What well, kind of a strip club? Well, I guess kind of a raunchy night, bar night, with a dancer. Night club. It's like a yeah, house. yeah. Well, it's it's a little raunchier than usual. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's just really weird because they have like the eighties movies seem to always have the Japanese group of businessmen who are like cutting loose in America, but they're also like you know, and this film has as well like learning how to be 
real businessmen from like westerners it's it's a very weird dynamic that's kind of ported seamlessly into this film in a very sort of unquestioned kind of a way i don't i just thought it was like a little bit strange that they had to you know he's doing lots of drugs in japan um yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know and yeah and the, the whole gasoline smuggling thing just seems so pointlessly convoluted but any anyway, i mean they they have submarines and boats and planes and they just move blocks of the stuff around and i was like that yeah. seems probably sufficient but i wouldn't think like they a got in, semi hauling a, a, a gas tanker is how is that efficient for international smuggling to begin with <laughs> <laughs> nothing but gasoline question. in here customs <laughs> but uh yeah no we'll uh we'll get to the great finale later but um in the meanwhile i believe it's around this time bond meets up with uh, pam bouvier again uh, where she's meeting Dario to get more information about Sanchez's uh, uh, drug operation, but it turns out into a roadhouse-style bar fight where uh, there's a shotgun that's blowing holes in the walls, there's a guy who tries to stab Bond with a stuffed frame marlin that's hanging on the wall. Um, that is a weird thing to grab as a weapon. I just yeah. like that really struck me. And I got a, a full, full props for like dedication to your task, the, the go-go dancer in that bar She's she keeps dancing for dancing a long time for so long it's not until like somebody almost shoots her that she decides to get down but she's like i gotta i need this job i gotta keep dancing it's like you're not gonna get tips right i mean these guys there's a dude pulling a giant fish off the wall to try and skewer someone and a shotgun has already been fired once yeah and she's just yeah she is a trooper yeah, it's insane. But um, Adam, I'll tell you, there's uh, that's not going to happen again in any of these. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's not going to uh, happen again in this one either, because this is kind of the point where where things take a, a real turn tone wise. Because I feel like this first portion before he heads to uh, Isthmus City is is a little shaky for me we'll say that yeah it's got its highs so it it feels like there's some sort of internal conflict going on like it it is very choppily edited and uh, again mm -hmm. there's a lot of it it feels like a daniel craig bond movie with like 15 minutes of roger moore shenanigans like cut into it in the first half hour i I don't know i I was not on board just yet (laughs) There, there's a strange, yeah. There, I, I, like, I mean, I mentioned earlier about how this film, I think, tempers it a little better in terms of being kind of no nonsense, pull the sleeves up, but still has room for some visual gags. There is still definitely a bit of that tension there, particularly um, with the gadgetry that eventually kind of permeates in. At you know, at one point they sneak up on a boat in a manta ray disguise, which is where yeah. you get, and he gets that before he meets Q. Like he found that. Yes. Um, like what is I don't understand. So I mean, I would agree with you. There, there is. A, this is still kind of dancing line of like it's it's James Bond reinvented, but it's not really a hundred percent reinvented. It's still trying for some kind of like moments of levity or I guess hyperbole. That kind of it's a little strange, and and it also like I mean yeah. it's a film that clearly has done no research into drug trafficking. Sure, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it does. To say the least. It does shine through the most. The sort of tension between the tones shines through the most in that uh, assault on the crest, uh, the wave crest, if you will, like that. Yeah, all of the underwater stuff. I I don't know. It, it didn't work for me at all. It's and that's underwater. A, that's a, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
Underwater in a Bond film is always a very shaky proposition because in Thunderball, which is over two hour two hours long, it's about twenty five percent of the runtime. I would say takes place underwater, and it's just because everyone moves so slowly, the action just really kind of drags it down. So uh, things are a bit brisker here, but yeah, underwater is not uh, not the best place for a Bond film to be. I would say. Sure. Yeah, it's it's got yeah. I I, I would agree with that, and there's there's also I mean. It's trying to be really, you know, like I keep saying, like gritty and no nonsense. But I mean, there's there's about ten points in that fight where they could have killed James Bond, and for some reason they just don't, and they just hand him a harpoon gun instead. Yeah. Um, and he he escapes with much daring do by yeah. literally uh, uh, assaulting a, a seaplane on his own. And yeah, <laughs> well, that's actually uh... behind it, which doesn't really work in a a, a gritty action scene. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, it's top-tier stunt work. They got a world champion skier to do that for real, like uh, barefoot skiing, which is, you know, it's it's a skill set someone's cultivated. Uh, it's it's cool, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it doesn't scan as gritty. It scans as, like, James Bond. I mean, I love that sequence. Him, for kicking it off with him sharp, or sharpooning, harpooning the guy who killed Sharky, who's like his, uh, his Korra ally, the guy who knows the island really well, him harpooning that guy. Then this is something I kind of mentioned earlier with the the setup and payoff is that now he's on the boat surrounded by guys, and the guy who he harpoons falls to the bottom of the ocean. He actually dives down and uses that guy's scuba gear to start breathing, which I think is a neat little detail. And then, yeah, then he knifes a bunch of bags of cocaine and uh, takes off on the seaplane, which he... Uh, he uses these bricks of cash to deflect the guy's bullets and throw the guy out of the plane and fly off with all this money, which he then uses to check into uh, Sanchez's hotel and basically use his own money against him. I, I think that's that's just wonderful. I love it so much. There it makes me giddy thinking about it. <laughs> there's definitely um, this film leans more on story than I think a lot of the Bond films that I can think of prior to this. There's a very strong kind of uh causality between the events like a core causality it's still i guess augmented with the flourishes of action sequences but um it's michael g wilson is the guy who wrote it with maybom who would go on to become a producer and uh he, he he's a big guy he's related to the broccolis i'm pretty sure uh, good old-fashioned nepotism still alive and well but uh, he did he, he i think he really he cited Yojimbo as an influence on this film, which is not hmm. something I would have picked up at, at the time, but it makes sense because Yojimbo is uh, the Kurosawa film is of course about a, a, a samurai or bandit wanders into a town that's run by two bases, two gangs warring against each other, and he essentially just uh, without any particular act of violence, just sort of turns the two of them against each other. They don't know what he's about, and he plays off of their paranoia, etc., to basically have them believe you know believe each other are do are upping escalating a war that he's actually just kind of pulling strings on and eventually the two wipe each other out mostly and that that is this film uh, as you said yeah. jake like he uses the money he uses sanchez's money to wage the next level of his war against sanchez while undercutting his regime and so on um yeah. and uh, you know i i think it's the film definitely relies more on kind of it, it's a film where you have to pay more attention to what's happening right um, we i guess we can argue about the success of that as a you know kind of within the framework of the bond franchise whether or not that kind of storytelling 
particularly works, but certainly this is a more intricate structure and kind of interlinking series of vignettes than or you know events than most bond films which just kind of have a very kind of straightforward pattern within each other like kind of they're driven by location and then they're sort of the like and then we go here which they do you know once he escapes in the seaplane he goes to the made-up country of what is it Ithmus, i think yes um, yeah it's a fictional yeah. country which is fictional because i mean they I, it's panama I, i'm pretty sure but um you know they, they didn't want to they, they're they're fine with saying a bunch of really racist stuff about south america but they weren't actually gonna <laughs> put it in a real south american country oh, of course um, not yeah but yeah i i think i think there's a there's a fair point i do i do agree with adam i think there is a there's a, a something of a tension in this film um that yeah i'm, I'm i enjoyed it but i'm not 100 percent sold on it I, it's kind of surprising to me because this was always my favorite and i think that was just because it was like the most violent when i was a kid <laughs> which is like my my highly skilled way of analyzing what was good uh was whether or not i was supposed to be watching it or not um, and i do think i was kind of surprised to think i think the living daylights maybe scans a little better as a movie to me which surprises me a bit but mm, you know i yeah there. just as far as preferences go, I mean, I go back and forth between the two. Um, like, I'll think of something I love in this film that is not in The Living Daylights, and then vice versa. Um, like, I think the best, regardless of how you feel about the film, I think the absolute strongest stuff here is the relationship that forms between uh, Davi and Dalton and their characters, and how it's the respect that Davi has for Bond because... Um, as we we've seen, uh, like Goldfinger, I'll bring up as a prime example, is a film where the villain and Bond basically know of each other almost right away, and their rivals set to destroy each other. And actually, Bond is held prisoner in um, Goldfinger Goldfinger's estate uh, for pretty much half of the runtime. But uh, there's like this sort of pseudo gamesmanship between the two. Here, it's a great relationship between. Uh, Sanchez not knowing that this guy is completely fucking him over and Bond relishing in every moment of it. And I think that is best encapsulated in the scene where they first meet. Bond is sort of makes a makes himself noticed by just playing a lot of heavy bets at a blackjack table. So they take him up to meet Sanchez and they have their first interaction with each other. And uh, Sanchez asks him, why do you carry a gun? And uh, um Bond says, well, in my business, you need to be prepared. And Sanchez says, well, what do you do? And Bond says, I help people with their problems. Sanchez goes, problem solver. And Bond smiles and says, more of a problem eliminator. And I think that is probably my contender for the finest line uttered in the franchise. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I just the, the quiet menace that Dalton delivers it, that's the series at its best for me. That is something that I love and look forward to every time I revisit this movie. It is a strange detail. Like we're we're what is this the nineteenth Bond film or the eighteenth? This is uh well let's see this is actually number sixteen of the official ones of the official yeah. sure okay so and we'll count within the sixteenth the official and I feel like is this the first time that James Bond is actually dealing with someone who doesn't know who he is? <laughs> like, I think so because Bond is so it, famous great. and infamous. Yeah, and like it, it is a genuinely because it's something I I had to readjust to. As I as I watch the film, because there is that interplay between both of them, and there is kind of that double take moment for me. It's like, oh wait, Sanchez doesn't actually know who he is. They always know who he is, and later on they play it. There's a scene where he reveals he does actually know who he is. He's since found out, but uh, you know, it's it's kind of like 
oh yeah, well, they're they're actually playing with the like Bond is actually operating in an actual spy mode right now in a kind of a subterfuge role, which generally he doesn't really do that other than like a couple of. You know, he normally, like, the most subterfuge he does is some acts of, like, convenient sabotage when he's already, you know, escaping from the villains and he's in the factory where they're making whatever doomsday device they're doing and he throws a wrench in the works. You know, but this this is a, a, a different mode. And as I say, it goes back to the fact that this film has a lot more interlocking plot pieces. So there there's kind of, like, he there there is that kind of elevation of... What is Bond doing? How is he working it? How is he gaming the people against each other? So yeah. uh, you know, I do, I do think that's an interesting uh, detail, and again, points maybe towards the film trying for uh, a more mature register. Certainly, works excellent. For me. Yeah, like I think this slower hour is easily yeah. the best portion of the film, and uh, uh, maybe some of the best stuff I've seen in this franchise. I, I think it's pretty great. Yeah. I totally agree, and it, leading up to uh, we get uh, introduced to an old uh, old favorite, Q joins the fray, and um, I think uh, as far as I think this is probably the producer's stab at uh, not keeping the film too dark. It's like no way we have jolly old Q here to help uh, Dalton out for the rest of the film, um, but I think this is also Desmond Llewellyn's finest hour as Q. He's he's it's fun to see him not be in an office and be actually out doing field work with 007, which is something that's very rare in the franchise as well it um, is uh, yeah and and he's kind of he's given a lot more space here it's interesting as well i mean in terms of within the world of the film that he's uh he's specifically breaching protocol too we didn't even mention i mean we have a scene with miss money penny uh back that's in, right in which i think is the only time she appears in a bond film without interacting with bond at all that's another uh, another casualty is miss carolyn bliss is uh money penny yeah, she Jeez. she will be gone no more. She's too old by the time they got to Aww. to nineteen ninety five. I mean, it's uh, Jake. It's uh, it's Bond. It's like, but oh, she would have been in her she would have been in her thirties. <laughs> so, <know>. uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's it's yeah, it's um, I I do I do think it was it's kind of funny though. Um, that cute shows up literally with just a suitcase of things, but they're explosive. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's that's his pretty much. He has an explosive alarm clock, an explosive toothpaste, explosive cigarettes, and he also has a camera gun, which looks like a camera but has a sniper scope and a barrel, yeah. which makes it very clearly a gun. <laughs> I'm not. <Yeah. laughs> Later on, Bond unpacks it in a suitcase, and it literally it's like a you know like those sniper in movies the sniper rifle comes in the foam case with the yeah. indentations perfectly for each piece of the gun to assemble and i mean it's literally it's a camera and there's a gun barrel and a sniper scope <laughs> embedded in the foam next to it there's no there's no doubting what it is from the get-go also the x-ray laser polaroid that uh that's right that uh, bouvier nearly kills everyone with yeah uh, which takes which also takes x-ray photos takes which... a, yeah it takes a nice photo of like it's like a theme park ride thank you for dying <laughs> you get you yeah, can see your yeah, skeleton it, it as both... you're fried you like it, it can you take the photo without shooting the laser there's you know there's a certain ambiguity there about the uh use of that prop but anyhow it, it i i do agree i think uh q's role is we again we could talk about is it the levity of the film it's a strange kind of tension within it the franchise to the individual film but certainly for desmond llewellyn fans i think you you'd have to point that this is probably more space than he's ever been given in a bond film to pretty much just be sort of 
yeah funny but also sort of paternal to bond that's something they've always hinted at and uh even gets a pretty good gag later on later in the film where he uses one of his own gadgets uh, and then just throws it away which kind of plays on the fact that he's constantly scolding bond for doing exactly the same thing see i think like the, the <laughs> yeah bouvier and q portion uh, which is largely the same portion i'm referring to this sort of slower hour that does add an amount of levity but it's it doesn't feel forced like it does in some of the early action in this where it is sure. it's more yeah. like they're forming this sort of family unit and there is some naturalist levity that keeps it from being you know super dark james bond with no one around him seeking revenge he, he's he's got this almost family unit and for me I don't feel the tension so much here between the tones. I I think that it it does almost strike like what you you'd say in in something like Lethal Weapon. If that's what they're going for, this is a lot closer to that in in achieving a little levity yeah. than what what they were doing early in the film. Sure, yeah, it's and I think the yeah. the the family unit you point out is a, it's, a, it's a good point because there's kind of if if Bond is if Bond is a little bit like Riggs and he's kind of on a suicide mission, he's kind of discarded his personal well-being, that these are the two people who actually care about him and worry a little bit about him. So, yeah, yeah it, adds, it does add a, a dimension there. Yeah, there's even a great little moment. I like to just praise the character of uh, Pam Bouvier for a moment um, because when it comes to a lot of Bond girls, a lot of them are just... Uh, uses, like Soto. I said. Yeah, well, to, well, Talisa. I mean, she's she's a different story because she's actually the villain's girl for the most of the picture, who happens to turn to a tertiary Bond girl or a secondary Bond girl. But um, uh, Pam Bouvier, she's like just as uh, capable and and action er, active as Bond is. Like they have this great little moment where she has like a tearaway dress to reveal her gun in an elevator that she uses to give to Bond and. And like any other film, it would just be a girl looking like wide-eyed as Bond assembles the gun himself. But like they kind of play off each other well, and I think that that's also adds to like the 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 family unit, as as Adam was saying, that that works wonderfully with this picture. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed um, that she didn't have more of a career. Right? I looked her up, and I'm like, yeah, she's like had a yeah, run on like Law I and know. Order, like nothing else. I'm like, she's great in this. So this all this stuff is all good. Um, Adam, how do you feel about the ninjas? Uh, we're we're back to the Roger Moore stuff. <laughs> Roger Moore comes back <laughs> to Roger Timothy Dalton. This is, yeah, this is the. I hate to say the worst part, but it's like one of the low points for me here is the just this whole fifteen minute interlude with ninjas that just seems like they're kind of trying to crowbar in as much eighties stuff as they can. It's like a dying yeah. breed of cinema, and so they couldn't Bond, even they couldn't even get Renosugi. They had to. Get carry Hiroyuki Tagawa, who's, who admittedly is actually capable of acting, which yeah. <laughs> probably probably won him the audition there, even if Renosugi showed up. But yeah, it's it's sort of a why are they ninja? Like they're they're kind of ninjas, but they're Hong Kong police. Yeah, the Hong Kong working again. Like it's strange because Hong Kong police breaking it up, and he's a British agent, but he's out of the loop, and he messes up their investigation. I don't know. It's kind of, like I said, interesting a little bit in terms of the concept of, of Bond actually being grossly negligent and irresponsible in this film following his own blood vendetta. But yeah. at the same time, this does feel like a pretty thinly 
kind of thought out section that just kind of introduces like you say another 80s trope is like ninjas are cool let's get some ninjas in there uh, although admittedly uh, i i can't help but think of like the martial arts sequences in man with a golden gun and honestly they're so bad that this is less bad so yeah we'll take well, that it's not not around as much for sure i mean the ninjas basically leave as soon as they enter um and they're actually killed off pretty violently like there's actual blood squibs on the the female ninja and um hiroki takes a suicide capsule to get out but um yeah it's a it's a not a good time to be a ninja in a bond film um but uh yeah so yeah anyway so bond is uh actually saved from sanchez by the ninjas and is actually that puts him closer to his side and he's actually now in his estate and kind of puppeteers his demise from inside and uh I think, you know, just skipping forward a bit, Bond returns his money onto the wave press to frame Anthony Zerbe, which uh, leads to the most violent death in the film where uh, his head explodes in a depressurization capsule. The greatest um, death in the entire James Bond franchise. Ten-year-old <laughs> uh, me will argue this to the death. This is just the greatest uh, this was this blew my mind as a kid. This was the coolest shit ever. <laughs> I've, I've I got no pushback. I, I remember. I remember. I had to ask what the hell the decompression chamber was, and someone had explained the bends to me, and I was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but that dude just blew up. Uh, and that's that's. <laughs> so we're learning with Bond. You know, I learned about you know water pressure and blood oxygen levels, and uh, yeah. and watched a man's head explode. Yeah. Uh, Adam, what are your thoughts on this? Uh horrifically violent death in what's otherwise a widely viewed pg-13 family film <laughs> uh i'm with it i'm with it i think it fit yeah. fit what they were trying to do a lot better than yeah again some chop sake ninjas flying in <laughs> but uh what about uh it, it was unexpected we, yeah. i will say that i, I didn't expect them yeah. to linger on the <laughs> and and the fact uh, like i will like I will absolutely give the film full kudos. They then use it to set up the shittiest pun uh, where after they blew him up in a, there was also a bunch of money in the decompression chamber, which obviously now is covered in Anthony Zerba gore. Um, yeah. They, they ask, what should we do with the cash? And Sanchez just says, launder it. <laughs> I, I like oh, that line. I'll, I, I'll defend it. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> say it like it's a pun. He just, it's like that's just the next course of action is laundry but it's like but also i mean given the circumstances you could not put that line in the film yeah that's fair well i mean you know the the i mean the one-liners are not really the dalton era's strong suits which is why no. there's not as many of them um but uh so they kind of they do when they do occur they stick out a bit more like a sore thumb um but uh, anyways, we didn't even mention that. Um, so as part of his uh, drug dealing process uh, as a front, um, Sanchez has teamed up with Dr. Joe Butcher, played by Wayne Newton, as a like a crazy televangelist cult leader to uh, who's got this like new wave religion that he's um, putting out on people. But he's also using that as the cover for his drug operation. Um, this is another weirdly convoluted plot yeah. detail and how they commute they, they take drug orders by donating figures that he reads out on television and he yeah he he asks for he sets the goal and that's the price of the the drugs and it's like i just, it there's surely an easier way to do this than have like an entire tv production crew 
Yeah, it's so they say that their goal is twenty two thousand dollars, which is for his church, so to speak. But that's actually what I believe uh, Sanchez is wanting to charge per kilo of coke. And then when like one chapter calls in and says they'll donate five hundred, that means that they're gonna buy five hundred installments of coke. And like I think he's he ends up with like five hundred million dollars in a briefcase towards the end of the film of all this. Uh, Which, I mean, can you ca- you could not carry that that's all that would be a lot <laughs> we sh- we should we should mention that uh Killifer, uh big ed uh, his payment at the er- beginning of the film is two million dollars in a suitcase <laughs> that is just filled with 20s <laughs> <laughs> he's big ed he can handle it uh yeah we, we there- skipped over um a couple of other guys as well because sure. uh, we also we also have president hector lopez that's oh, right. Uh, the, the president of the country, who honestly does not register, particularly in the film, but he is played by Pedro Amandares Jr., who yeah. is solely of note because his father, Pedro Armandares, played uh, Karen Bay in From Russia with Love. So there's like a little family connection there, which is kind of cool, kind of nice. Yeah. The You know, the Bond film operates in that. But also, I think more importantly, from a plot perspective, we're also introduced to uh, Truman Lodge. Played oh, by Anthony right. Stark, who is Sanchez's basically like '80s asshole businessman, um, who seems cut from the exact same cloth as Die Hard's guy. I can't remember the the actor who played him, but the the guy who tries to negotiate with terrorists because he's a hotshot businessman, and of course dies oh. horribly. Hans um, Booby, that guy, that that guy, like this this seems like the oh, exact same thing. Just he's a, re- but. Uh, Again, and it's kind of interesting. Like, it frustrates me a little bit in Bond films generally, kind of because they kind of they have these ideas. They tap into certain true, you know, maybe what they feel are truisms or cliches, and yeah. they, you know, but they they can never tip them over. They can never, you know, expose the underside. And it, it's really interesting that this guy is basically. You know, he's he's just a business executive. He's just, you know, a, a ruthlessly efficient business dealer who's working in drugs. And it's kind of this allying of kind of, I guess, you know, hotshot Wall Street executives with the drug deals. I mean, like, this is Scorsese stuff, you know? This could be this could be a whole, you know, thing. Um, yeah. But, it, but it's not, it's never really, you know, they don't really... Dig in, dig in at all. He's just another douchebag who we know is going to get killed. Yeah, he's kind of Truman Lodge. Kind of reminds me of uh, David Patrick Ke- Kelly from uh, Twin Peaks and the Warriors, but he's really just that guy played straight. Like, there's not an ounce, like an ounce of winking. He's always just very, he's very fussy and concerned with like the money that Sanchez is wasting throughout the movie. Yeah, I mean, um, he's he's an accountant. He's like he's just trying to do like an ISO nine thousand, you know, efficiency <laughs> audit of like an international drug ring, um, you know. Which again is interesting because drug dealing is just a business. I mean, it is that it's a business where you get to kill your competitors, which yeah. you know most businesses would love to be able to do. Uh, but it just it never really gets into it. But like I say, I th- I feel like there's a lot of that DNA of like the the cokehead asshole business guy who was like a mainstay of eighties movies. Yeah. And his his uppance will come as we'll see later. His uppance will come. Yeah. So um, I think we're just about arriving to the the grand finale first, which takes place in uh, Sanchez's um, drug factory, where we see the process where the drugs the the cocaine bricks are ground up in a giant coffee grinder then they're dissolved into gasoline and then like they mentioned earlier through a like a convoluted flame and coffee filter procedure you can extract 
gasoline or cocaine from gasoline after it has been thoroughly dissolved inside of it. All, I, all of this in the in the guise of like a, an almost like Aztec temple that yes. they've built somewhere. Yes, and at, with like just functioning opening doors for helicopters and swiveling platforms it is insane i mean it's like kind of low-key and off like uh this is like the closest that this film gets to like a the villain having a grand lair yeah most of it just happening in inside of mansions and casinos this is like this is i do like i do like they promise that they will send for the for the you know reclaiming the cocaine they they will send their you know lab experts to japan to no. help them reclaim it. It's like, he's literally pouring it through a coffee filter. This... <laughs> I think I think we've got it. You just need a ginormous coffee filter. That's that's the stipulation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't really know the... Uh, are you familiar with the silent, si- science behind uh, cocaine and uh, gasoline, Adam? Uh, no. I, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that they would mutually destroy each other so that the gasoline would, would ruin any engine you, you put it into and the cocaine would kill anyone who, who snorted. Somewhere down the line, there's someone trying to commit suicide in their garage and they're getting high instead off fumes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, so uh, Bond is spotted by Dario, who uh, recognizes him from the Roadhouse bar fight. Uh, Bond acts quickly and sets the whole place on fire but uh he's tied up and da- left dangling over the uh, the giant cocaine coffee grinder um but pam shows up shoots dario bond pulls him in uh and turns into a nice red bloody powder mist um i don't know if there's a was there a one-liner after he kills benicio del toro i don't remember um but uh we there's even i jesus christ i just remember there's another plot element here that we've not even mentioned is that there's this guy named heller who is actually working undercover closely with Sanchez because Sanchez has acquired some Stinger missiles to shoot down an airplane. And in exchange for immunity from the U.S. government, which is what Pam is doing in the first place, uh, Heller is trying to get the missiles and stop Sanchez. So that's another thing that Bond turns against uh, Sanchez as he convinces him Heller is... Up to I no feel good. Like there's a reason we didn't mention that because it's not developed at all. It's just kind of like it does, yeah, it's like this is missiles. It's, it's four, it's, four yeah. stinger missiles. Like four yeah. of them. Yeah, like well, I feel I mean, like it, the, I, the army could lose those in a weekend and not give a shit. <laughs> yeah, just firing them off into the sea or something. Um, but yeah, so I only bring it up because in all this this scuffle, there's Heller is impaled on a forklift and driven through a wall. Um, which is a that's just pr- how this movie rolls yeah nobody has a dignified death everyone has to explode or burn up or get impaled by tractors um but uh <laughs> anyway so sanchez escapes with the uh, tanker trucks filled with uh, cocaine gasoline um which is kind of like a weird mad max road warrior riff um Coca-line. and then cocaine oh cocaine first there was gasoline ga- now there's cocaine i like it <laughs> Um, anyways, but I think, uh, like, for as wonky as some elements have been it before, I think this entire sequence is, uh, just flat-out excellent. Um, I love uh, the practical effects of, uh, tanker trucks going down hills. I love the truck going on its side wheels to avoid a stinger missile. I love the, the wheelie crunch. I love that Pam is up in a plane, raising hell on her own and dropping, like, uh, uh the just crop, dust crop dusting guys. on some guys in a pickup truck. I think it's great. What do you? It's you know, it's it's got. Yeah, it's I can't. Textural. I can't judge this sequence uh, 
like objectively because uh, yeah. obviously this is just burned on my brain uh so i think it's probably a pretty good action sequence because like the the end this end sequence with the with just the truck caravan and being you know each one just being blown up and moving on to the next one is just a it was it's cool it works yes i'm i'm all on board for this part i'd love to yeah i'd love to hear adam what you thought of this uh entire finale uh, i'm less uh, high on it than you guys are again it, it's You're coming just, in 20 years too late right yeah i'm sure i'd love <laughs> it as fair. a kid it's just one of those things where you know i'm, I'm in this groove where i'm watching like a uh, a shitty Michael Mann movie or something, but still enjoying the hell out of it. And then all of a sudden we got to have <laughs> this big rig, like tilting over and going like, woo. And I'm just like, that's not the movie I thought I was watching. <laughs> yeah. I will admit, I think, I think the big rig going on, on its wheels was, it's a little too much. Although so far as I can tell, a driver did that. That was, uh, that's the thing. That's an actual practical effect. Stunt that that guy did. It's not yeah, like they insane. rigged it up. You could tell it didn't read fake at all. It just wasn't what I wanted to be watching at the time. I'm like, ah, this is not how I wanted this movie to end. I wanted to. <laughs> it, it, it does have that kind of Jurassic Park feel of, you know, uh, we were too busy, you know, figuring how to do it that we never asked, should we do yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, and for the yeah. Stinger missile, I mean, he avoids a Stinger missile by putting a big rig on two wheels or on like on just one side it's it's a bit weird but no all the other explodies i mean it's just uh, i love this part because it's just they just keep strafing oil tankers with machine gun fire <laughs> and that's fine <laughs> that's cool yeah uh, but eventually they they all explode in some way or another it did have yeah. its highlights um, i'll say that like i loved the uh when uh dalton manages to like get the one tanker going cliffside to smash into the other one for grand explosion time and uh, yeah, it oh, has yeah has its moments it's the just explosions little, are huge yeah it, it's maybe just a little flabby for me oh yeah like i could stand uh, it to be about 10 minutes shorter and maybe lose some of the overly cartoony practical effects yeah, I'm not 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 too big a fan of the uh, just the local workers with the truck full of pineapples that they almost hit and they like they're bound, the pineapples bounce off the windshield. But um, yeah, like I I mean the I mean, gosh, as far as like I I always harp on like just blockbusters today are just loud go boom movies. But I I I'm thrilled watching all these giant gorgeous explosions in the desert. I think the tanker trucks all explode magnificently. Um, it's it's a it's a great finale they, for me they do look like insanely large explosions like That's sometimes sometimes it's... you watch an action movie and you're just like mm -hmm. that just seems excessive even within the context of action cinema and some of the explosions in this look like they went to mexico and yeah. just were left alone and they just like put extra explosives in everything there, I mean, I always, I will always say it. Action looks better when it looks like it was actually dangerous to do, and yet oh, sure. nobody died. Uh, anyways, uh, Truman Lodge has gone down. Apparently, there were a yeah. bunch. There were a bunch of accidents. Uh, I there was some person uh, took an account of a bunch of accidents. Apparently, there was a curse. There's always a curse in these movies. I don't know why. It's this thing. But apparently there were a bunch of like little minor accidents. And apparently some guy took a still photo of the explosion yeah. when they were setting Sanchez on fire. And apparently there's a ghostly hand in the still photo, but it's not on the film. Uh, yeah, which, there's a... Yeah. The, 
I'll send it around. There's, but yeah, there's an explosion that looks like a giant demonic hand, which is uh, crazy. Um, uh, yeah. But uh, anyways, yeah. I'm... So we mentioned it. Uh, Sanchez ends up trying to machete Bond to death, and in the process, he gets himself covered in gasoline, and he actually has Bond beaten. And uh, n- another just great exchange between the two is that Sanchez says, "You could have had everything," and Bond just asks him. Don't you want to know why? And like just the whole driving purpose for the whole film it encapsulated in the lighter. And he sets him on fire and gets what I think is the best villain death in the franchise. Uh, it's it's, just, it's, it's definitely per- a step up from Yafit Koto exploding. I don't yeah. know. That, Adam, that's got to be top tier. <laughs> how, do you, how do you feel you got the two films where the most villains explode? That's another happy coincidence, I guess. <laughs> Like, yeah, sharks and exploding people and, yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, that I can get behind. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, anyways, the all the cocaine fuel is destroyed. Um, uh, I mean, theoretically, the co- the fire might have just dried out all the, the, the gasoline and we might just have piles of coke. Uh, we don't know the science. It could work that That's way. That's true. Or maybe, yeah, maybe, they're, maybe it filters in the truck and there's actually a whole, like, net system that they have set up to... Could be, I, I like, like to think there's just piles of cocaine, just tons of cocaine, just in perfect little dried out piles, and then the Mexican winds just carry them over the border into into America, yeah. and everyone's just getting high as shit, and that could be an amazing sequel and stem the next level of the dr- war on drugs. That's true. Yeah. So, anyways, the day is saved. Uh, everybody parties at uh, the now dead Sanchez's mansion, which uh, Lupe has taken over. Um, she, I guess it's implied that she'll hook up with the president of Isthmus. And, uh, yeah, Bond gets Pam. And uh, Patti LaBelle plays us out. The final Dalton film. In, in a very odd musical choice. I agree <laughs> with Adam on that. That, like, came up and it's like, sorry, what? <laughs> very <laughs> odd musical. And the the last image of the film is a winking fish statue. <laughs> it's... I'd actually forgotten about that. You know, why is that there? I don't know. Just John Glenn's weird fascination with animals. He's just got to have something. That's true. He does love the animal humor. It's like the like the spirit of Roger Moore reincarnated in a fish, except that Roger Moore was still alive when this was filmed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, if you ask me to, Patti LaBelle plays us out. Uh, so, yeah, that's License to Kill, and that, uh, sadly, that wraps up the end of our Timothy Dalton era, as, you know, I get a little sad when it ends, because there is never another one. Um, gone too soon. Gone too soon. Adam, what are your uh, what are your overall thoughts? Does this make you at all curious to watch uh, The Living Daylights? Uh, yeah, it does, because I, I do... For more Dalton? I do think his that's more of a, performance is excellent. He's he's great, and The Living Daylights is actually more of a proper spy film. Like, I would say next to From Russia With Love, it's just the best one that's just completely spy work. Um, and uh, a little less explodey, although there are a few more explosions, but uh, not as grandiloquent as some tr- tanker trucks going through the desert. But, uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. If you like Dalton, it's definitely worth a watch for his performance alone. Yeah. Who doesn't um, like Dalton? I don't yeah. understand why he's not more fondly regarded as I, a bond he's very excellent here yeah i'm surprised you, by how mixed yeah. the reviews of this film are um several polls have placed this as one of the worst james bond movies and i'm just like did they see the roger moore era 
Yeah. No. Anytime, anytime there's like some sort of ranking of the series, I can't help but look at it and just because I'm always curious what their placement is of the Dalton films. And the lower your Dalton films are on your list, the less inclined I am to trust you because I, I think both of his films are spectacular in many different well, ways. I would, I would yeah, suggest I, I guess that you know, you guys had said that the more film that I I watched with you was not among the bottom tier more films and. This is is far and away. As much as I have qualms with it and think it's it's kind of a strange transition production, uh, it's far and away a better film than, than Live and Let Die. And uh, I I yeah. agree. So I'd say I, this I is my also in my top six than, than most of the Brosnan era that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I I it only makes me curious what uh, what would Dalton's Goldeneye have looked like because that would have been cool. I think. But um, yeah, no, see ya, end of an era for many things. Um, well, uh, just about coming up to the end, but before we do that, we got a regular segment. Jack, do you want to run some numbers with me? I, I will absolutely run some numbers. So so we have License to Kill, so a lot of, lot of killing going on here. Uh, oh, actually, you know, weird thing about that. It's called License to Kill. It was originally called License Revoked. Yeah. So That's what they, they originally called the movie, and then American test audiences said that sounded like James Bond went to the DMV, <laughs> so they changed yeah. it. And they're correct. License Revoked is a terrible title. Yeah. There's a reference to that title in the film because M says, your license to kill has been revoked. But uh, yeah, License Revoked was the original title and it didn't stick. I mean, yeah, they'd, um, they'd, they'd have to say License to Kill Revoked, which is an even worse title. <laughs> but it just, it just sounds like he's doing an administrative challenge <laughs> yeah like i gotta get some photos taken and get some down to the notary uh but anyhow <laughs> <laughs> glad they glad they fixed it a little bit um so in this this most violent james bond film uh he only kills 13 people so he's not up there we still have uh the spy who loved me which which carries the record roger moore managed record with 22 people killed <laughs> kindly old uncle roger was a was a low-key john gacy character just wiping people out left right and center uh so 13 people uh i am counting the the, the maggot man um, i think that's an on-screen death to me personally i'm also counting there's one scene where, where where he releases the trailer and it goes down the hill and hits the other trailer there's like a cut in between there of the two drivers of one of the drivers helping the other one out yeah and, like they carry him away and i think that's meant to suggest that they you know, they're, these innocent men are like, okay, but with the size of the explosion, there's no way. They're dead. I'm counting Bond killed them. That's There's no way anyone's walking away from that. So, yeah, so, so we have 13, which we can now do do a total. Let's let's do a running total of the Bonds so far. So, uh, Sean Connery killed 74 people. Uh, George Lazenby, only six. George yeah. Lazenby was like our, our most genteel Bond. Uh, Roger Moore, the winner, with 86 people killed. Um, and I think uh, Connery and Moore had the same number of films in the end. I can't remember. Maybe Moore had one more. If, if you count uh, Never Say Never Again, they do have the same number of films. Okay, that's what I thought. And I'm, I'm counting towards Connery total. So so yeah. Moore comes out on top. And Timothy Dalton kills 13 apiece in both of his films. So he comes out with 26. Which, huh. means, probably, which probably means pound for pound. He's probably oh, the yeah. most violent Bond you know, picture to picture. Best um, per per film kill average, I'd say. Yeah, I, I was hard to top. I don't know. I'd be curious to see what happens once we get into the, the Pierce Brosnan, Daniel Craig kind of increased violent PG-13 era and see what happens. 
but um yeah well you know who knows so um and then we have of course as we've discussed because of aids kind of putting a damper on the whole sex revolution thing and the 80s also putting a damper on that just generally um he he only i can't really sleep with two women i think he he certainly sleeps with bam bouvier or pam bouvier at the end but uh lupe there's that dissolve. oh no he uh he sleeps with her on the uh after they escape the roadhouse they oh that's, they that's get right on the, on the boat. boat yeah on the boat that's right um but um so yeah I, I counted with both of them i feel like he did you know well yeah, yeah. it's explicitly why not? stated that, that he spent the night with talisa soto's lupe lamora so i'm gonna assume that they weren't just i think snuggling you know <laughs> That's yeah, fair. That's, that's totally, very, totally yeah, fair. You know, Bond doesn't he's snuggle. grieving. He needs he needs comfort. Uh, so, uh, our our still God, I hate every time I come across this part. Uh, Roger Moore still holds the record for the greatest age difference. He was thirty years older than Carol Bouquet and For Your Eyes Only. Uh, Timothy Dalton's doing fine. He's forty three years old. He's uh fifteen years older than Carrie Lowell. Twenty one years older than Talisa Soto. That's significant but uh well i guess he's not he's not breaking the records yet um like i say i think honestly it's felix and his his wife to be uh 35 oh also you know what did you david hedison who played felix only died july of this year of 2019 that's right yeah yeah. he lived to be 92 years old so fair play to felix he recovered from the shark attack yeah um so so good for him but um yeah we we have Timothy Dalton era was not really the sexy era at all I think um and I'm, honestly I don't think Pierce Brosnan really picked up on that you know picked up the pace too much at that point we were into the 90s and you know vague conceptions of progressiveness that weren't really progressive at all uh, oh I think so, you'll find that uh, Pierce gets around plenty but uh, they, okay well, maybe this is like probably the two sexiest bonds right you would think the movies okay. would be more sexy Nah, nah, AIDS ruined it, man. <laughs> AIDS, yeah. I mean, you know, hey, young Connery's uh, pretty sexy, if you ask me. And well, uh, that's fair. Uh, that's we'll, fair. Uh, yeah, but Dalton and Brian. I mean, to be both, fair, uh, yeah, they're both. They got that charisma, and they both would have aged up to be good old Bonds too, if they would have gone that route. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the problem. They aged up, but the women—they always seem to be the same. Unfortunately, age. the only yeah. old bot is Roger Moore, who was far too old and. <laughs> unsexy to begin with <laughs> stuck around yeah. for like and you years. and you, you caught him and you caught him on his best looking <laughs> film which is strange <laughs> but uh well, as yeah. i said roger moore decided he was getting too old for it when when one of the bond girls moms showed up on set and he was like older than her too <laughs> so um yeah uh that's the way I went. Well, you you alluded to it earlier, Jake. Yeah, box office for this film did did not set the the world yeah. on fire. Well, I mean, let's get into it. This movie cost thirty two million to make, which is about sixty six million today, and it only grossed in the U S thirty four million, which is uh kind of embarrassing for a Bond film thus far, which is a uh, seventy million today. Only went on to gross about one hundred fifty six million worldwide, which is about three hundred twenty three million adjusted for today. If you uh, adjust the entire box office gross for inflation and rank it across the entire series, this is the lowest grossing Bond film. Um, Which, I mean, that's not, that's not, like, that's not a small amount of money it made internationally. It still turned a healthy profit. It's... Yeah, no, it's good money. It's just not great Bond franchise money for being 18 films deep. It's that, I I guess that's true. Um, And it's also where I, I checked on this. This apparently went into cinemas at the same time as Lethal Weapon 2 
that's Ghostbusters two and uh, one of the Indiana Jones. I think I think the one with yeah. Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. And last... Batman is yeah. right yeah. in there as well. Oh, and Batman. Batman yeah, this was a very stacked summer, and this is actually the last Bond film to be released in summer. Every subsequent Bond film is released in either November or December afterwards because it just couldn't compete with all these these it, the times are changing. People wanted Batman now, which is crazy to think thirty years ago. Well, it, it, but, to um, me, that yeah, was so. like the most fascinating thing because I was trying to you know place this film. I'm like, what what is James Bond at this point? I know this wasn't like a huge success and it was dwarfed by a couple of these other films. But it looks like a movie that should be dwarfed by those other films. Like, this does not look like a, a American blockbuster in 1989. Like, compared the way this looks to, like, yeah. The Last Crusade. And you're like, wow, jeez, no wonder. It looks downright low budget. And it has almost an identical budget to Batman, which is fucking insane. <laughs> It, yeah. it is strange. This is the only. This is the first ever Bond film that not a single frame of it was shot in England, and the reason for that was because a tax credit got knocked away. There was something that gave you know budgetary, uh, kind of I guess advantages to homegrown English productions, um, and that was eradicated. I think so. They so they they decided it was cheaper to shoot in Mexico, um. And it's it's in I I guess it's kind of like just the the stunts. I mean the stunts work in this is just very technical and big. I think that's where the money went primarily because it's, yeah. it's not like it's not a cast of like it's not a heavy hitting cast. It's just a lot of character actors. It's a good yeah. cast, but it's not like they're the you know like are any of these people big stars? Like Timothy Dalton's probably yeah. most famous for playing Bond. Yeah, Robert Downey's probably the know. most famous person in this cast. Well, outside of Benicio, but he was nobody <laughs> then. Yeah, yeah. Benicio's twenty one yeah, years old, just like it probably got him for like a couple of couple of hundred bucks, whatever. Well, yeah, and if you factor in yeah. how much money Nicholson made for Batman and then consider that they had a similar budget, it's like what the fuck? How is that possible? It's a, that is that's such he a made good, a, well, exactly. He made a whole city come to life basically with his war creation. Did didn't Nick wasn't Nicholson saying that like didn't he get a cut of the box office? Was like they didn't pay him all that up front because he got like twenty million for that uh, film. Yeah, I'm sure it was I, a percentage. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I but nonetheless, I'm sure he amount of money. massively no, no, more it's a fair point. than anyone in, in this film. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. That's why, you know, that's why they're yeah. all shooting Canada and how Americans can't afford to make American films yeah. anymore. And uh, and I know, just in case we were wondering, uh, this film uh, earned zero Oscar nominations. <laughs> yeah, I, you, you say that, Jake, but uh, I do I do want you guys to know that uh, it was nominated for Best Motion Picture in the Edgar Allan Poe Awards. That's <laughs> a good uh, good uh, good award ceremony. No no idea what that is. Have and I would, you know even from a Edgar Allan Poe perspective, I don't understand why this film was foregrounded. I don't know what they do. But uh, it didn't yeah. win. <laughs> also, worth though, didn't win that. I don't know what did win. Maybe I should find that out. Maybe there was a adaptation of the Telltale Heart that just snuck ahead. Stuart yeah. Gordon. <laughs> Stuart, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, just one of the wards of Poe and cinema. I, who the hell knows? Um, yeah, yeah. This one didn't even. You know, if they had the best stunt Oscar, maybe could could have been yeah, up for yeah. that. But no such recognition. Get your shit together, Ampus. People are burning to death for movies. 
Yeah. Almost. Well, they, they didn't kill anyone in this one. Oh, oh, almost. Got it. I mean, I like I like the way we can look back on Bond films and go, yeah, yeah, someone someone was grievously into, like, some guy chopped his leg off for, you know, you only live twice uh, in a helicopter blade, which is, like, that's, that's hardcore. Uh, you know, this was dull. Just a couple of near misses. I do want to, that's yeah. the thing back on it. I do want to call out that shot in the in the finale where um where uh, Pam is flying the airplane and they just catapult a burning pickup truck across her. That's that's cinema. Yeah. Right there. That's capital K Kino. And the practical effect of him shooting the stinger missile through her little uh, tail flap, which like practically it, it it's like an effect that bursts open that and she still maintains the plane in the air. It's that's you know, it's practical stuff like this um, that I love. Yeah, there's some good stuff. There is. There is. All right. Well, indeed. Well, uh, any uh, any uh, departing thoughts on uh, this uh, this franchise, uh, Adam, or uh, your experience? We've uh, we've loved having you on for two wildly different films. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, if I had all the time in the world, I'm sure I'd watch the rest of these. But uh, a lot of the meat of this series is what you guys love yeah. and it, it's not what i love i i kind of love the fact that this doesn't feel like a bond film it's doing something completely separate and when it gets back to being a bond film is, is when i kind of lose interest a little bit so i i think it is illustrative to the fact that this franchise is probably never going to be for me and again a lot of that does have to do with i didn't grow up with it and there it goes but That's I, I do find it to be very interesting in context. <laughs> That's totally fair, yeah, and it's always great to have a perspective like that on. Um, but uh, I, I guess that about does it. Uh, Adam, do you, uh, you don't do any uh, social media that you want people to contact you on, right? You want us? This is like your only encounter with the world, and you're just gonna fade off into the mist. Is that correct? Pretty much. All right. Well, uh, Jack, uh, where would you like the people to find you these days? Oh, well, you can find me on Twitter at RealJackEason, where I just spend time on that site for some goddamn reason. So. You're, you're a pretty good follow. You tweet way more than I do. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm at Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Uh, you can also hit up our main account. That's at OptimismVaccine. Uh, or if you don't do Twitter, you can email us at OptimismVaccine at gmail.com. Uh, if you're listening to this, why not share your thoughts on the Dalton era? Do you think he's uh, wild, widely underrated, or do you think he's uh, people were right back then and he's one of the worst? I don't know. I don't want to hear that part, but uh, yeah, tweet tweet us the good stuff. Um, but yeah, that about does it for this uh, episode of uh, Four Year Years Only. Uh, if, if there's an editor's note I can add, I'd like us to be played out with uh, Patty Labelle's "If You Ask Me To" instead of our regular outro. Well, rest theme. assured, you will. Um, <laughs> Oh, I'm and, glad and we're on the same make, page. It'll make more sense here than there because <laughs> we're just following suit. All right, excellent. Well, for Jack Eason, I've been uh, Jake Tropila. This is uh, for your ears only. We will return with Goldeneye. Take care.
Again. 